Let me begin by telling you how grateful I am that you're here tonight <coughs> and how happy I have been to be a part of this church now since Sunday morning. It's been a wonderful week for me and I hope it has been for you. Several of you have been here every single service and for every prayer you've prayed, for every invitation to others you've extended, for every time you've been present, I just want you to know how grateful I am for that. I appreciate ever so much Spencer and the elders here inviting me to come and just been a wonderful week. I've enjoyed again spending time with Spencer. And I thank you so much just for this young man, for y'all loving him. Uh, I think the church here is in great shape. You have wonderful elders. You have a preacher that loves you and a good staff. And I believe that your future is very, very bright. Thank you for the fruit basket and the nice card that I received when I first came. And I've enjoyed nibbling on that all during this week. In fact, it has served as my breakfast on two or three mornings. And so I appreciate that ever so much. But it's just been good to be with you. And I want you to know that I'm grateful for this good church. I pray God's richest blessings on you. I would like to request that you remember the Heritage Place Church of Christ uh, as you pray. We're going to be going through a transition in a couple of years. I've told the elders there that at the age of 80, two more years from now, I plan to transition out of the pulpit as senior minister or pulpit preacher. I plan to stay on with them. They've asked me to do that, preach one Sunday a month until I can't crawl in the pulpit anymore. So I don't know how long that'll be. But I'll tell you, it's a real joy at the age of 78 to be able to still preach full-time for a local church. I have a brother who's 75 who preaches for the church at Ardmore, uh, Tennessee. Another brother who's 73 years of age who's a full-time preacher in Sheffield, Alabama at the Cox Boulevard Church, church of about 500. He's been there 30-plus years. And so it's good that folks still use old people to preach. And so I'm just glad to be a part so let me get you to take your Bibles, please, if you will. Turn to the book of John chapter 14. And while you're turning to that, I'm going to be reading, reading in just a moment, verses 1 through 6. But while you're turning, I, I wish I had the words of a flaming orator so that I could paint a picture of heaven that would be so beautiful that you would long to leave this earth and soar away to that beautiful home of the soul. I wish, I wish I had those kinds of words for you. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best tonight to make heaven so appealing because it is that way in Scripture that you'll all want to go there. Not only will you want to go there, but you might <clears throat> even want to go there now. I heard about a Sunday school teacher who was teaching uh, little boys and girls in her class, and so she asked, how many of you in here want to go to heaven? And all the hands went up except one little boy. And she looked over at him and she said, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Oh, he said, yes, ma'am, when I die, but I thought you was getting up a load today. I, th I think we all want to go to heaven, but just not now. We're in no hurry to get there, but I think when you really know what heaven is like, you won't be afraid of death, you won't be scared to look to the future at all. In the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus is bidding farewell to his disciples. He's warned them time and again that he had to die and that he would be leaving them. And they were tearful. They were heartbroken. And so these tender words, I can just see Jesus in my mind as he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you unto myself where I am, 
there you may be also. And whither I go, you know. And the way, you know. And Thomas saith, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. Some translations say, in my Father's house are many rooms. I like the old King James Version. In my Father's house are many, many mansions. And so I want to tell you some of the reasons why I want to go to heaven. This is going to be a personal sermon. I told you that I preached for, the last, for about seven weeks or eight weeks on heaven recently. And this is kind of the culmination of all of that. Personally, I want to go to heaven, number one, because I want to see Jesus face to face. First reason, I want to see Jesus. I heard about a black minister who preached in Atlanta several years ago, and he preached on heaven one Sunday, and while he was preaching about heaven, he was uh, overtaken with emotion. He began to weep in the pulpit, and he held up his hand for the church to give him time to regain his composure, and he stood there for a few moments and tears still running down his cheeks. He put his hand up again and asking him to wait. And then finally, after a while, he just couldn't seem to regain his composure. So he just, he just kind of gave him the go, go home sign. And he started over here to his, his office, which was to the left. He got about halfway to his office and he came back. He said, I think I can finish my sermon. And by the way, no one had moved. He said, I think I can finish my sermon. But he said, you know, one of these days, Oh, John's going to die. He's going to be taken to the angels over yonder into the bosom of Abraham. He said, I'm going to see Jesus. But he said, as I begin to walk those golden streets, an angel may come up to me and he'll say, John, while you lived upon the earth, you turned many to righteousness. And here's a crown, John. It's got lots of stars in it. And he said, I'm going to say, Mr. Angel, I thank you for my crown. I'm grateful for the stars. But I ain't got no time now to stop and put it on because I'm on my way to see my Jesus. He said, I'll go on down that golden street and I'll be approached perhaps by another angel who'll say, John, you turned many to righteousness while you're upon the earth. Here, put on this robe of righteousness, John. He said, I'm going to say, Mr. Angel, I thank you for my robe, but I ain't got time to stop and put it on because I'm looking for my Jesus. He said, when I find him, I'm just going to drop on my knees in front of him and I'm going to hug him and I'm going to say thank you for saving a poor sinner like me. I want to see my Jesus. I don't know. Maybe you have some concept of what Jesus looks like. Uh, you've seen pictures. You know, we all grew up with those little cards. Those of us who are older, the little cards where the Sunday school teacher would have a picture of Jesus and a few little Bible verses would teach us. So, you know, I think all of us have some kind of concept. We don't really know what he looks like, but we have some idea. But I want to see Jesus so badly. I just want to thank him for his wonderful life, for the sacrifice that he made. I want to be able to spend time with Jesus. And I also want to see my heavenly Father, God. I have no concept of what God looks like. You know, I think I, I know what Jesus looks like based on those pictures. But nobody's ever seen a picture of God. Maybe you heard the story about a little uh, girl who was drawing in her Sunday school class. The teacher said, what are you doing, honey? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the Sunday school teacher said, well, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. She said, well, they will when I get through. <laughs> well, I have no concept of what God might look like. 
But I want to tell you something. When I consider his love, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, I want to see him. I know that the Bible tells me that when Moses was in Mount Sinai, he saw the backside of Jesus, and when he came down out of the mountain, his face was shining so brightly that the Israelites asked him to put on a veil. It's going to be something to see God. It's going to be something to be able to love your Heavenly Father up close and personal. And what I like about eternity is the Bible says, and God shall be with them, and shall be their God. He's going to be with us, folks, in that new beautiful home of the soul. And so I want to see God. I want to have an experience of just seeing my Father and seeing Jesus Christ. First thing I want to do is locate them. And I want to thank them for their great love and mercy and goodness and kindness for saving sinners. I want to go to heaven because I believe it's a place of grand reunion. It's a place where we'll be reunited. I, I come from a big family. My father was one of nine children. There were seven boys and two girls. And we have a Kilpatrick family reunion ever so often, once a year. In fact, in September, a bunch of us get together. But you know, every time uh, when I'm there, we miss some of the old folks because they've died out. And not only that, but uh, after the day is over and we're heading back home, we may talk about some of the ones we saw, but it, it, always there are some there that we had no time to spend with and talk to. Won't it be great? In eternity, there are no time restraints. Won't it be great to be able to have fellowship and be with each other forever and ever and ever? And so I'm looking forward to this grand, grand reunion. Somebody asked me the other night, they said, do you think we'll know each other in heaven? And I said, I'll tell you on that last night of the meeting. I definitely think we'll know each other in heaven. I base that on a couple of scriptures. I base that on the one where in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah and Christ were transfigured and Peter, James, and John were there. And they recognized Moses, they recognized Elijah in their transfigured states, though neither of them had ever seen him in their lives. But they knew Moses and they knew Elijah. And not only that, but in Luke 16, and some say it's a, a parable, but whether it's a parable or not, it teaches the same thing. And so you remember that Abraham looked over yonder and saw Lazarus. He recognized Lazarus. He also recognized Father Abraham. And he said, Father Abraham sent Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in these flames. I think we're going to know each other in heaven. Now, we won't be married in heaven. The Bible says there's no marriage. We'll be like the angels, uh, however that is. I've been married to my wife 57 years. She is my best buddy in the whole wide world. I can't wait to get home to see her. As a matter of fact, when I was a younger preacher and I finished a meeting on a Wednesday night, no matter what time, I got in my car and headed home. Don't do that anymore because it's just a little harder. But I love to go home. I love to be with Carolyn. Now, we won't be married in heaven, but I've always said to her, you'll be my best angel, buddy. I think I want to look her up, don't you think? We had an old preacher that had retired and lived there in Birmingham and attended church at Homewood. Uh, he died at the age of 75 and left his widow, Ava, behind. But he said to her before he died, when he was very sick, he said, Ava, I'm just going to wait inside the gate. Just inside the gate, I'll be waiting on you. Oh, I want to go to heaven. I want to see loved ones who are already there. I want to see my grandfather, Kilpatrick. My granddad, we called him Big Daddy, was a minister. And I, I ran out of money when I was at Freed Hardeman. I, when I started there, I had $100, and that was all. And I ran out of money after a while. I'd borrowed some from the uh, NEA or some uh, club or something. 
But anyway, I ran out of money, and I got a letter from the dean saying, you can't take your final exams until you pay off what you owe the school. And so I owed about $400, and so I went home and went out to see my big daddy. He had 30-plus grandchildren. I used to say 30-odd, and some of them were very odd. 30-odd grandchildren. And so I went out to see my big daddy, and, and I told him what the situation was, and I said, Big Daddy, I, I need to borrow $400 if you could let me have it so I can finish my school year. He said, well, Wayne, I'll come by and pick you up in the morning, and uh, we'll go to the bank, and if I got money in the bank, I'll, I'll let you have it. Well, he knew he did. So I, anyway, he picked me up, took me to the bank, in a little bit he came out, handed me a check for the money that I needed to finish that school year. I said to him, I'll pay you back. When I get out of school, I'll pay you back. He said, well, that's all right, son. If I ever need it, I'll call for it, and he never did. I had, uh, at the end of my first year, I preached my very first sermon. I had not gone to Freed Hardeman to become a minister. Uh, the last semester that I was there in the first year, I changed my, uh, changed my major from engineering over to secondary education. I was going to be a school teacher and a coach, and so I was going to preach, I think, for a little church someplace, but anyway... My roommate had two places to preach the same Sunday. And he had forgotten that he was already committed to one place, and somebody asked him, you know, some of his preacher buddies asked him if he'd preach for them. He took both jobs. So he came into the room that day, and he said, Wayne, I'm in trouble. I've got two places to preach Sunday. And I said, well, you'll find somebody. A lot of preacher boys on campus. I said, you'll find somebody. He said, no, I've already been asking, and I, I can't find anybody. So he said, why don't you preach for me? And I we laughed, both of us. That was, I needed to be preached to instead of preaching to folks. So I, I assured him that he'd find somebody if he'd go ahead and look. And so anyway, he goes around, asks some more, and then he comes back the second time. He said, Wayne, I can't find anybody. You've got to preach for me. So I, I said, well, Richard, if you'll help me get up a sermon, I'll do it. I knew nothing about sermon preparation, how you did that. So I said, if you'll help me, I'll do it. Well, what room, uh, the word sped throughout the, the dorm. Wayne's going to preach Sunday. And it was a modern-day miracle, I think. And so these preacher boys came into my room, and they were all poking sermons at me, here to use this or do that. I got really confused with their help. So I finally told them, I said, Richard's going to help me, so if you will, uh, let him do it. Well, when they left, Richard reached under his bunk, his bed, pulled out an old sheet, and he hung it on the wall. And he began to go over it point by point and telling me how to preach that sermon. It was entitled, To Him It Is Sin. And the text was, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. He had every sin in the Bible written up there on that chart. If you know to do this, you don't do it, it's a sin. Had Bible verses backing it up. And so I went out to that little place called Hickory Plains, about, oh, 10 or 15 miles out of Huntington, Tennessee. I preached that Sunday. I preached 17 whole minutes. And I think that's what got them. They asked me, if you coming back next year to school? I said, yes. They said, would you like to come preach for us one Sunday a month? I said, sure. And so I got hired that day to come back next year and preach for them. Well, school was out then right away, and I went home, and I went out to visit my grandfather. And I said, Big Daddy, guess what I did last week? He said, I have no idea. He said, what would you do? I said, I preached. He said, well, that's good. I want you to go with me Sunday and lead singing. And so I picked him up on that Sunday morning, took him out to a place called Glover's Chapel, about 20 miles or so outside of Huntsville. And he preached that Sunday. I led the singing. When he got through, he got back up in the pulpit, and he, he said this. He said, for about 25 years now, I've been coming out here off and on. He said, I think I've done you about all the good I can do. So he said, I'm resigning today, and my grandson Wayne's there as a preacher. 
and he'll be glad to come preach for you. I about fell off the front pew. But they hired me that day to come two Sundays a month. And then right away, I ran into the fellow that preached the other two Sundays, and I said to him, his name was B.J. Strickland, I said, Strick, you and I got something in common. He said, what's that? I said, we both preach for the same church. He said, you preaching at Glover's Chapel? I said, yes. I replaced my grandfather. He said, well, take my two Sundays. So suddenly I'm preaching every Sunday, and I only had one sermon, it was a chart. <laughs> but you know what? My grandfather never heard me preach. Never heard me one time. He died at the age of 73. And I want to see him. I want to be able to tell my grandfather, because of you, I spent my whole life preaching. I want to thank him. And I want to tell him what it means to me that I was his grandson. I want to go to heaven. I want to see a man by the name of Guy Lawrence. Guy Lawrence was an elder in the church at Swartz Creek, Michigan, and I've never met in my life a greater soul winner. Guy was one of the busiest men I've ever met. He was an electrician by trade. He owned a, uh, an appliance store in addition to that. And yet one year, Guy Lawrence by himself baptized 17 people. It was not unusual at all. As I'd get up to preach on a Sunday morning, Guy would be sitting two or three rows back, and he'd reach out inside, and he'd hold up so many fingers. And that's how many people he'd talked to that week who said they would respond when the invitation song was sung. And so you talk about being able to preach, folks. If you can just quote Acts 2.38 and seven people respond, that makes you look good, doesn't it? But Guy Lawrence was a soul winner. I learned how to be a soul winner from Guy. One of the things that I learned from him was we'd go out and visit people that needed to be restored. Guy didn't beat around the bush. He didn't talk about politics. He didn't talk about football teams. He got right to the point. And he would say something like this. You had not been coming to church, have you? Well, no, guy, we, we hadn't been attending like we should. He said, well, you know what you ought to do, don't you? They'd say, yeah, we know. Well, he said, you're going to do something about it, aren't you? You're going to be there Sunday. Well, we'll try. No, you're not going to try. You're going to be there Sunday, aren't you? Now, he wouldn't let up. You're going to be there. And finally, they'd say, yeah, well, I'll be there Sunday. And then you know what he would say? He'd say, you've been unfaithful to God. You know what you need to do? You need to walk down that aisle and confess your negligence. Ask the church to pray for you. You're going to do that too, aren't you? And they say, well, you know, guy, I think I'll be at church. No, you're going to be there, and you're going to walk down that aisle, aren't you? And then he would hold up so many fingers on Sunday morning. He would talk to them. I learned to do personal evangelism with Guy Lawrence. I want to see him. I want to tell him that over my lifetime, and I was just 23 years old when I moved to Swartz Creek, I want to tell him that over my lifetime, Using his approach, and I've seen him tear up. He would just, after he would talk sternly to him, he would, he would just tear up and say, I'm talking to you like this because I love you and I don't want you to be lost. I want to say, Guy Lawrence, what a pleasure. We had a guy named Leo Owsley. He was a member of our church at Homewoods when I first went there. Leo had served as an elder in the past, but due to uh, health problems, had heart problems, the, uh, church, the uh, doctors told him, said, you can't handle the stress of being an elder and, and live long. So he resigned, but his heart was always there. 
Leo was one guy that when you were preaching, Leo would just, he had a voice that would boom all over the building. He'd say, amen. I'll never forget the Sunday he said, praise the Lord, right out loud. Every neck in the whole uh, house turned. In fact, turned so fast they had to go see a chiropractor. But Leo had a heart for God like nobody I've ever seen. He was Mr. Enthusiasm. And so many times I met with Guy and I met with uh, Leo and these other men that influenced me. I want to see those fellows. They're there now with God. I want to see them. My mom and dad is there. My older brother, Roy, died at the age of 71 10 years ago. I want to see Roy. And I, t- I know, while I'm telling you who I want to see, you're thinking about somebody you want to see, aren't you? You want to see a, a son or daughter that may be there, mom or dad, grandparents. But I do believe with all of my heart we'll know each other when we get there. And I believe we'll have a grand reunion. I want to go to heaven because of a grand reunion. I want to go to heaven because of my mansion. He said, I'll, I have many mansions prepared for you. And I can't begin to imagine what that mansion will look like. How many of you have ever been to the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina? Have you ever been there? Several of you have. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but a fellow by the name of George Vanderbilt built that house. It took him five or six years to be able to build it. He started in 1886. 1886, it was finished in 1891. The house covers four full acres. 250 rooms in that house, 35 bedrooms, 43 uh, baths, 65 fireplaces. And it's one of the most opulent places you have ever seen in your life. And you know what I think? I think it looks like a shack by the sea compared to what our mansion will be like. About a month ago, Carolyn and I visited Newport, Rhode Island. And we went to see some of those uh, great, great houses built during the Gilded Age. We went into three of them. And the first one we went into, you, I, I can't, it was also built by one of the Vanderbilts. And you cannot even begin, unless you've been there, you can't imagine what all went into building of that house. And by the way, they would spend six weeks a year in that house. Six weeks out of the year in a house that is uh, just so beautiful beyond in words. You have to see it. And yet I'm saying to you again, shacks by the sea compared to what you and I are going to have. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? I don't know what it's going to be like, but I tell you this, I don't want to miss it. And if the Lord calls it a mansion, it must be special. You keep in mind he created this world, and when he created it, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. It had to be beautiful beyond description, pure water, clean air, and... uh, peace and tranquility like you can't imagine. I want to go to heaven, folks. I want to go to heaven to see Jesus and God. I want to see my loved ones who are already there. And I want this mansion, and I want you to have it too, because he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and come again to receive you unto myself, the way I am there you may be also. And so I want to go to heaven because I'm excited about my mansion. Let me tell you another thing that makes heaven so appealing. It is a place of no tears and no pain. There are all kinds of tears down here. They're tears of disappointment. I don't know for sure, but I have an idea that Moses shed tears of disappointment. When he was led by God to Mount Nebo and he was able to look out across to the land of Canaan. And God said, that's the land that the children of Israel will inhabit. 
But you're not going to be able to go in, Moses, because you sinned against me. I'm not going to let you go in. I have an idea. It broke his heart. His foot would never set foot in the beautiful land of Canaan. Tears of disappointment. We all shed them. Parents shed tears of disappointment when their children take to drugs or alcohol or when their children quit coming to church. Breaks a mom and daddy's heart and we shed those tears of disappointment when we sometimes have trouble in our homes. A husband or a wife is unfaithful. We shed tears of disappointment. But folks, not only do we shed tears of disappointment, there are also tears of shattered dreams. Dreams that never come true. Ambitions that are never realized. We all shed those kinds of tears as well. And then we also shed tears because of death. And we've all been to funerals where we've seen death and we've seen the the family suffer and shed those tears. Revelation chapter 21, 4 says, He'll wipe away all tears from our eyes. Revelation 7, 17 says, God's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes. And so there will be no more tears, no more tears, and no more pain. That's one of the best things about it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be them and uh, be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things passed away. No more pain. I don't know how many years, almost 20 years, I guess, we had a television program when I preached at Homewood. It was on every Sunday morning. We had our own TV studio. And on uh, one day, I was in the studio. In fact, I had just begun doing the TV program for the following, taping it for the following Sunday. My secretary came into the studio. Nobody ever interrupted us when we were filming, but she came right on into the studio, and she said, Wayne, there's an important phone call that you need to take. So I got up from what I was doing, and I went out in the hall to a telephone, and it was a nurse downtown at Children's Hospital. And she said, Wayne, there's a little 14-year-old girl in here who is dying. She has seen you on TV, and you're the only preacher she knows in all of Birmingham. And she wants you to come and have prayer with her. She knows she doesn't have long. And so I told the fellows who were doing the filming, I said, I've got to run. I'll be back as soon as I can. I went down to Children's Hospital. I went up and found this little girl. She was 14 years old. She had cystic fibrosis. She was bent over, fighting for every breath she could get. And I saw pain that day like I'd never seen. The little girl was just gasping for breath. I went in and had prayer with her. I assured her that Jesus loved her and that he would be with her and help her to cross over. I told her, don't be afraid. Just depend on Jesus. I went back out in the hall and the grandmother was out there and she was weeping. And I tried my best to console her for a few minutes. I went down to my car. I laid my head over on the steering wheel. I wept for a little girl and the pain. And she died not long after I left that hospital. Oh, I've seen pain. And I'm so glad that one day God's going to wipe away all tears. He's going to wipe away all the pain. 
It's going to be a wonderful place to be for all eternity. Just think of it. No sickness, no death, no pain. And another reason why I want to go there so badly is that heaven is a place of peace, and it is a place of rest. Peace. In this world of ours, we've been at war almost since we got here. And so we've seen wars all over the place, and some of you in this room have no doubt lost children in those wars. You know what it's like to be notified that your child has lost his or her life. And yet it's so wonderful to know that one of these days there's going to be peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And in heaven there'll be no wars, there'll be no, no squabbling, no fussing, no fighting whatsoever. It'll just be a place of peace. And it's also going to be a place of rest. Jesus said in Revelation 14, 13, John wrote these words, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. They're going to rest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 says, There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. Folks, we're going to rest. Not going to have any worries, not going to have any pain, but there's going to be nothing but rest for us. And then another thing that makes me want to go to heaven is, can you imagine the music in heaven? Can you begin? I mean, don't you love great singing? I enjoy beautiful singing. I, love, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than acapella singing. We don't have instrumental music, and I thank God we don't, for the reason that I think, first of all, uh, New Testament church did not use it. But you, here's another reason I like it. There's nothing more beautiful than human voice. And I've been to some of these churches and seminars where or go to some church growth thing put on by somebody where they have instrumental music and it drowns out any singing. You can't even hear the singing. But boy, when you have people who love to sing. On Sunday afternoon when I came in the building, there was a group sitting out here in the foyer singing. And they sing because they love it. They sing well. And it's a beautiful thing to hear. Do you know the Bible says that in heaven that they're going to be uh, many angels singing, and the number of the angels are thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Boy, there's going to be some singing up there. Going to be music like we've never imagined. And Revelation 15, 13 says, They sing in heaven a new song, the song of Moses and the Lamb. I hope you like new songs because we're going to have one up there. You know, a lot of times people say, I don't like those new songs. Get used to it. Go sing one in heaven, a new song of Moses and the Lamb. And so I want to go to heaven because I can't wait to hear that music and be a part of that angelic choir. I want to go to heaven for that reason. Here's another reason why I want to go to heaven, and I want you to go because in heaven there's no temptation. There's no sin. Revelation 21 says that no sin will enter heaven. And so up there, oh, Satan won't tempt us again. You know what has been so disturbing to me over the years? is to watch brethren backslide into sin and stay in sin. I go to a place and maybe conduct a meeting. Several people respond. Two or three years later, I go back to that same place. I look around for those converts, and some of them are not there. They've, slid, they've backslidden into sin. I had a good friend when I was just a young preacher, I had a friend by the name of Skip. I won't tell you his last name, but Skip was a powerful preacher. He was an evangelist. At age 25, he was holding 20 meetings a year. He was already booked in Cobo Hall Arena 
in Detroit, Michigan, where 10,000 people would assemble. At a 25 years old, that's the kind of preacher he was. He spoke over at Harding during the preacher's forum, and I heard him speak that day. He was introduced by Cliff Gaines. Sitting on that platform with him was Jimmy Allen. And I'll never forget that Cliff Gaines, when he introduced my friend Skip, he said this. He said, this young man is one of the most powerful preachers in our brotherhood today. He said, you young preachers, he's a model for you. You all want to try to emulate his life. And then he also said, he's another Jimmy Allen. That was back when Jimmy was in his heyday. I had driven over with Skip. He preached for the church where my mom and dad attended in Huntsville. And I'd driven over and he had ridden with me. And on the way back home that day, he began to tell me about things that he was into. He told me when he went to David Lipscomb that many times on Saturday night, he would go out, drink beer, sometimes fornicate, and then go preach the next day. And when he was telling me about all these things he had been doing, I sensed no shame and I sensed no penance. It was almost like he was bragging about the things he had done. I got home that night at about 11 o'clock. He spent the night with us. After we'd gone to bed, I, usually Carol and I would talk about what I'd, who I'd seen, what we'd heard. That night, I, I laid down and I turned my face away from her. After I lay there for a little while, Carolyn said to me, she said, what's wrong? I said, I don't want to talk about it. She said, something's bothering you. I said, yes, but I really don't want to talk about it. And I laid there that night and I wept for my friend. It wasn't long after that, he left his wife. The church loved him so much. They said to him, even though they knew some of the things he was into, they said, we give you six months to go and get help. We'll continue to support you for six months. Go get the help you need and come back and be our preacher. But he never came back to be their preacher. He divorced his wife. He's been married two or three times since. He came to my office one afternoon in Birmingham, Alabama. He came into the office and just uh, appeared. It was almost time to go home, almost 5 o'clock that afternoon, when all of a sudden there he was. I hadn't seen him uh, since the time that uh, he came to my house and we rode together. But he walked in that day and he looked like he'd aged 10 years. He smelled of tobacco. He came in, he sat down, and we began to visit for a while and ask him what had been going on in his life and he told me about some of the things. But after a while he said, Wayne, do you think I could ever preach again? I said, I don't know, Skip. I know this. I know you can be forgiven. I don't know how the brethren would accept you, but I do know you can be forgiven. You have not committed a sin that God Almighty can't forgive. And then he said this, and I don't think I'll ever forget, my friend Skip said. He said, Wayne, I want you to tell the church something when you preach. I want you to tell them that the Bible is right. The Bible is right. The Bible says, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. He said, I am now a servant of sin. He quoted another verse, of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought into bondage. He said, Wayne, I am in bondage to Satan. I am his servant and his slave, and I can't get out. I said, yes, you can, because the gospel of Christ is more powerful than Satan. It's the God's power unto salvation. You can get out with God's help and with Jesus' help. I know you can. He said this. He said, the Bible is right, Wayne, about sin. He quoted a passage about 
the wages of sin being death, but he also said this. He said, you know, the Bible says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. He said, when I leave your office tonight, I'm going to go downtown to a motel that I've rented. And he said, if there's a bar close by, I will go to that bar and I will drink. And if there's a woman in that bar that will go to my motel room and spend the night with me, I'll take her with me. But he said, I want to tell you this. In the morning, I will not have had a good time. He said, sin has lost its pleasure. He said, when I first left the church and I first turned my back on God, he said, I went through every door, sinfully speaking, through which I could go. He said, I even tried to invent sins. I did everything, and I was having such a good time that I said, you're a fool for having spent all those years preaching. You could have been doing this all along. But he said, now it's not any fun. It's lost all of its pleasure. And my friend who would preach in those great meetings and many people would respond, became lost to Satan. And as far as I know, he has never returned. He left a wife and a little boy. And last time I talked to him on the phone, he had called me to tell me about his son and some of the stuff he was into. You lose, folks, when you sin. But in heaven, there be no temptation. There be no sin. When you make it to heaven, you'll never have to worry about being cast out. One more thing I'm going to tell you, maybe a couple of things, and that is... Heaven's going to be a place of perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge. You know, a lot of things happen down here I can't explain. I don't understand. We've had, we have one lady at our church, she and her husband, have two sons that both died within two months of each other. Grown sons. One of them, a boy named Jeff, a young man. He was 31 years old. He came and just showed up at church one Sunday morning. He, he went over and told his mom, said, I want to go to church with you. He hadn't been to church in I don't know how many years. He'd been a, a drug addict. He said, I want to go to church with you. And that Sunday morning, he walked into our church, and our people greeted him, and he told his mom, he said, I found a home. I found a home. And when the invitation song was sung that day, he walked down the aisle. He told God he was sorry for his sins. He asked us to pray for him and God to forgive him. And that very evening, he was killed. They lost a 31-year-old son. They had one more son. He was 33. He died two months later. He was having a birthday party out at his place, and some of his friends were on four-wheelers. One of them got stuck, and so Larry hooked his four-wheeler onto this other one that was in the mud, and when he tried to pull him out, the four-wheeler reared up, fell over on him, crushed his skull, and killed him. She lost two sons, grown sons, within two months. You think that's not hard? She still grieves today. It's been, I don't know how many years now. But every so often on Facebook, she puts a picture of those kids, those two boys. She grieves today. Why does that happen? And, and that's her question. Why did God let that happen? I lost both boys. And you know, I have no answer for that. I have no answer. The Bible says, now we see through a glass darkly. But then one day, face to face, then shall we know even as also we're known. The day will come, folks, when we'll understand. As the old song says, we'll understand it better by and by. And so until then, we have to wait. We just have to trust God. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. We just keep trusting. And we keep believing that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And so we keep believing. But there are things we just don't understand. Now having told you those things, I hope that you want to go to heaven. And that to me leaves one very, very vital and important question. How do I get to heaven? How do I make sure when the roll is called up yonder that my name will be called? And I will tell you folks, there is but one way to go to heaven. And that is through Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Not Mohammed, not Sarah Baker Eddy, not Joseph Smith, not any of those. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ our Lord. I make no apology for saying that. That's what Scripture teaches. Acts 4 and 12, Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11 says, Other foundation can no man lay than that is Christ, laid, that is Christ Jesus. He's the only way. And so tonight, if you want to go to heaven, folks, it's through Jesus. And the way to get through Jesus is you come to him. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He wants you to come. He stands ready to receive you and to make you the promise, I go and prepare a place for you. If you've never been a Christian, Jesus is the way to do it, and his blood is the answer. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Know ye not that so many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we're buried with him of baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead with the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So you come tonight. If you've never been baptized into Christ, We'll ask you one very important question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? We'll take you this very hour of the night, baptize you into Christ, for your name gets written in that book, so when the roll is called up yonder, your name will be called, and you'll hear him say, well done, welcome you home. If you're in this room tonight and you're not sure of your salvation, if I were to ask you, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? If you cannot answer emphatically with a yes, you need to do something tonight. So don't wait any longer. He loves you. He waits for you to come while we stand to sing. Break my heart, dear Lord. Tell